Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Dustin Fletcher, Al Green, Travis Stork, Perry Tyson Edwards, Brett Maher, Dale Kicker, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bill McDonald, Sam Jacobs, Calvert, Marcus Burry, Sean Redditch, James McIntyre, Andrew Vlahov, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Ekamanis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Lich, Matt Smith, Michael Wilson, Brendan Teague, Jordan McMahon, Brett Thurst, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Sapwell, Dusty Rakeheart, Sam Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgievsky, Dom Tyson, Sergio Fandai, Adam Snyder, Ricky Grit. Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. They've got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed for the Premiers in 2018. There it is. Brisbane have won it. The Orange Order is restored. It took just one season of transition, but Brisbane Raw, Premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17-year drought is over. All hail the Kings. Sydney, the NBL 22 champions. 3-0 sweep. They win it. 97 to 88. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, episode 39. I hope everyone is doing well. All is very good, very grateful on this end. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by one of the greatest to ever do it in Australian basketball, the amazing Ricky Grace. Throughout this conversation, we discuss growing up in Dallas, Texas and finding his love of basketball from a young age, coming through the ranks at the University of Oklahoma and the NCAA to being selected by the Utah Jazz in the late 80s. Meeting Cal Bruton and being offered a contract with the Perth Wildcats, a club in a league whom he'd never heard of prior. Joining the NBL and immediately being part of on and off court success, winning the Wildcats inaugural championship in 1990 and also becoming an immediate fan favourite. Winning his second grand final MVP in a losing team in 1993 and the mixed emotions that came with winning that award his short stint in the NBA with the Atlanta Hawks and opting to decline an offer to stay longer to return to his beloved Wildcats here in Australia. Being part of the Perth team who toured London and played against the Houston Rockets in 1995, winning four championships in Australia under four different coaches, becoming naturalised and representing Australia at the 2000 Olympic Games with the Boomers, retiring in 2005 due to consistent injuries, and working in Indigenous spaces and running his own basketball academy post-playing career. From 1990 to 2005, Ricky Grace played a total of 482 games, a Perth Wildcats club record. He was a four-time NBL champion in 1990, 1991, 1995 and 2000. He's a six-time Perth Wildcats MVP winner, a four-time NBL first-teamer, He was the Perth Wildcats captain from 2002 to 2005. He was an Australian representative in the 2000 Olympic Games with the Boomers. 
He was a part of the NBL's 25th anniversary team. He is in the Australian Basketball Hall of Fame, and his number 15 jersey has been retired by the Perth Wildcats and hangs from the rafters at all Perth Wildcat home games. As I mentioned, he currently runs his own basketball academy, Grace Basketball. So if you're looking to improve your game, definitely hit Ricky up at Grace Basketball. The link is in the description below. Just a great guy. Absolutely love him for what he did on the court, but also the person he is off the court. Very inspirational, and I think you're going to take a lot out of this episode. From the Perth Wildcats and the Australian national team, the amazing Ricky Grace. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter and today we've got one of the greatest to ever do it here in the NBL from the Perth Wildcats. Ricky Grace, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here today. My pleasure. It's already been nearly 20 years since your final game for the Wildcats. Have you been up to since that time? I understand you're running a basketball program and you're also doing some work in the Indigenous space. Can you give our listeners a bit of an update on what you're doing with yourself nowadays? Yeah, doing a lot of coaching. I'm south of the river now. I'm doing a lot of coaching, mostly south of the river, but some people drive a bit further because they want to work with me. Just called Grace Basketball. I do a lot of one-on-one training, group training. I have a basketball specialist program going on at a couple of schools. Basketball is such a growing, popular sport that I'm privileged to still continue to be doing it as a living. I've always done quite a bit of volunteer work in the Aboriginal space, and then I actually did it for a living for about 15, 16 years, but very happy to still be doing a little bit of work in the Aboriginal space. Yeah, so of course, because you played for such a long time, I understand you wanting to sort of stay in the basketball spectrum per se, but may I ask, what led you to wanting to help Indigenous communities and assisting in the education of, of Indigenous students? Have you always been interested in this area? I was asked by a team chaplain of one of the Melbourne teams originally. And at the end of every season, I used to go out and do volunteer work. I called it my mission work, where I would donate my time a week or two in that space. And I really enjoyed the work. I appreciated the fact that they allowed me to enter their culture and their communities with open arms. And through sport, I was able to promote education. A lot of people don't know I have a master's degree in educational leadership, and I genuinely believe that a good education carries more value than being a good sports person. So what I've tried to do is just, I guess, increase the awareness of the importance it is of going to school, and I've used sport as that avenue to go out to Aboriginal communities in regional and remote areas to promote what I think is very important, which is going to school. You can really see the genuine care and the, the, the genuine want to help in that space, and I really admire and appreciate that. Along with assisting in Indigenous spaces, 
one thing I've always found interesting about you is ever since you retired, you still reside in Perth to this day. Did you ever have plans to head back to Dallas or is Perth home forever for you? I have the best of both worlds where I spend quite a bit of time in America, but I also do a lot of work here. So it's a really small world now compared to when I first moved to Australia 30 years ago, where it cost $1.25 a minute to talk on the phone <laughs> to America to where now, you know, you can obviously look at the person while you're talking to them for basically free for data. So it's a small world now. So I'm I'm very happy that I'm able to, to live the best of both worlds where I, I go back and forth quite a bit. But you're right, Perth has been home and, and it is where I spend most of my time. But I'm lucky enough to be able to enjoy the best of both worlds. Well, we're lucky to still have you here. As I mentioned, you're originally from Dallas in Texas. Could you give the listeners some insights maybe into your early life growing up, family life, schooling, etc., as well as when you first discovered basketball? Well, yeah, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Gridiron country, football as they call it. Grew up loving the Dallas Cowboys football team. Used to cry when they lose. Actually, I still cry when they lose. Um, I've been <laughs> doing a lot of crying lately. Been doing a lot of crying lately. But played all three sports as a youngster, and I promote that, not just playing one sport, particularly up until about the ninth or tenth grade, but played a bit of baseball, gridiron, and basketball. But I was better at basketball. Uh, seemed to pick that up quicker. Didn't really like playing out in the mud and rain and and all that sort of stuff. So I'm a little bit soft when it comes to that. I'm a fair weather fella. So basketball was my sport. I was really good at it. I enjoyed the camaraderie that comes along with playing on a team and just being around productive, positive people. And I also knew from an early age that I wasn't going to be able to afford a college education, which is something my mom always instilled in me, is that I got to get a college education. But I would have been paying off student loans for 40 years. So I decided to try and get good at basketball just to pay for my college education. And I was successful enough at that and then ended up being pretty good and ended up making a career out of it. When was it when you realized you were good enough to make a professional career out of basketball? Well, probably I never really dreamed of being a professional basketball player. I never really dreamed of playing in the NBA. Maybe I should have set that as a goal. Maybe it would have happened, but I just enjoyed playing a lot. And like I said, my goal was just to be good enough to get a scholarship, a free education. So I guess when I got to the University of Oklahoma and we played in the national championship game and I was playing against people that were NBA draft picks and they were known to be potential NBA draft picks and I felt like I was just as good as them. Well, probably my junior, senior year in university was when I sort of realized that, hey, I'm just good enough as them to to possibly play professionally. Because if my research is correct, you, well, you mentioned you went to University of Oklahoma and you spent some time in the CBA. But I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you made it onto an NBA camp list before coming to Australia. I think it was the Utah Jazz. Yeah, I was drafted by Utah Jazz. Now they only have two rounds, but I was drafted by Utah Jazz in the third round. Yeah, I was there for three or four months and was unsuccessful. I was actually cut the day before the regular season started. I still remember flying out of the airport while Washington Bullets were coming in to play the first game of the season after I had gotten the sack. So got the sack from Utah, went back to university, got my college degree, just needed one more class for that. 
finish that off. And then I went to try out in 1989-90 for the expansion team, Minnesota Timberwolves. Didn't make that team, and that's when I ended up coming out to Perth in January 1990. Yeah, how did the NBL actually come about? I mean, Cal Bruton was the coach of the Wildcats at the time, and I assume he would have played a part in you coming to Australia. Did you know much of the NBL before you came here? Did, did you even know much about Australia at that time? No, absolutely nothing. So, no, I, I didn't know anything about Perth or Australia at the time. And you got to remember there wasn't any internet. And uh, Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, all I had was encyclopedia, man. So um, I didn't even bother looking it up on encyclopedia. I, I got to Sydney. It said I left Sydney at 9 o'clock and I arrived at Perth at 10 o'clock. I thought it was a one-hour flight. Because of the time difference. <laughs> yeah, that's how green I was. But as soon as I arrived in Perth, they took me to the Perth Entertainment Center. And I knew basketball was obviously pretty big here. It was the first year that they were moving from the Superdrome or Challenge Stadium to the Perth Entertainment Center. I guess I got here at the right time where basketball was booming. Cal Bruton had just retired. He was the person playing my position point guard and had done a great job from 1987 to 1989 and so Cal recruited me to come out here and play in 1990. It seemed like leading up to the 1990 the foundation was there so how do I explain this so the Wildcats started in 82 but 87 was the year where the club really got big in WA so you had Ellis, Crawford, Pinder, Torrance, Watterson etc and then yourself you come in the Wildcats were massive at that time did you sense at all the team was capable of winning a championship? Well, we didn't gel in the beginning. There was quite a bit of controversy. Uh, Alan Black was the coach the first few games, and then Cal was brought in. We actually weren't guaranteed to make the playoffs until the last game of that 1990 season where we had to win, and we were tied. I, I believe we were tied and finished up fifth. They only had six teams at the time, so... It wasn't always smooth sailing that first year, but we ended up peaking at the right time and won that championship in, in, in 1990. Uh, but we were pretty fortunate to be able to do it. How did you see Cal Bruton as coach with the run stun, have some fun style? I thought he was great. He was great for basketball on the court. He was great for basketball off the court. If you go back, you know, like you said, to 1987, well... He was the first hire by Bob Williams, the uh, owner at the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Bob was just elected into the Basketball Hall of Fame. But Bob was responsible for bringing Cal over in 87. And then Cal is the one that built the team. So he brought in James Crawford, Tidy Pender. He brought, I think, Steve Davis over from over east, who was a really good role player. He brought in a young fella named David Close. We called him Radar. He was a great young shooter. And then he matched that up with Mike Ellis and Eric Watterson and Trevor Torrance, who had already been here, So, and Robbie Dempster and those boys. So Kyle came in, put together an amazing team, ended up eventually coaching that team, and, yeah, we won the championship with it. But I really enjoyed the run, son, and have some fun, because that really suited my style of play. That 1990 championship, you defeated Brisbane, who were a super team back then, led by, obviously, Brian Kerr and, and Leroy Loggins. You won the series 2-1. Was there pressure coming into that final series? Because you'd made the finals, I know you weren't there the whole time, but you'd made the finals 87, 88, 89, and then 90. 
was there pressure to win a championship? Lee lets it go. The clock's strike zero. And the Perth Wildcats are the 1990 Hungry Jacks National Basketball League champions by a margin of 23 points, 109 to 86. It's been a marvellous year of basketball. And I would say a fitting three-game series to end it on, Peter. Yes, it's almost uh, deja vu in 87. The second game score was 106 to 87 to Brisbane. The other way around. Congratulations to Perth. Well done. They've come back from adversity after losing the second game by 16 points. Yeah, oh, for sure. And you can't forget about Derek Rucker on that team as well. He was the 1990 yes, of MVP of the league. Probably the best player but, in the NBL to never win a championship. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, there's so many great players that, you know, didn't win a championship. But, no, there was definitely pressure in that 1990 team. I recall Kerry Stokes, who had become owner that year. He was transitioning over from Bob Williams. Kerry sort of gave us a bit of an ultimatum. Said, Boys, you've been knocking at the door since 1987, and the time is now. I think we knew that if it didn't happen this year, even though it was my first, the nucleus had been there for three, now four. Well, you know, there was a chance that we may have gone in a different direction if we didn't pull that off in 1990. So it was a huge relief to finally get that monkey off our back, so to speak, even though it was my first year. And what was it like winning the grand final MVP? I mean, not much went wrong for you in that first season. The MVP for the final series award, that's in a vote that's taken over the three final games. Ricky Grace and or Tony Pinder? Of the Kmart grand final series MVP, Ricky Grace. Yes, indeed. Well, he would only just have shaded Tony Pinder, but uh, it certainly deserved, and Derek Rucker could have figured in there as well. man it was unbelievable because I remember well the year before you know I had lost in the national championship game at University of Oklahoma and that was the biggest game that I played in my life up until then and and to lose that national championship game and then North Melbourne Giants coach Bruce Palmer had a point guard on his team called named Joe Hillman and Joe had won a championship at University of Indiana so Bruce Palmer had gone in the paper and said that I wasn't a winner, didn't know how to win the big one. And, you know, you're not supposed to read the paper, but some kind of way those sort of comments find their way to you. Yeah, so I was aware of that comment. And I was, I mean, that wasn't the reason that I wanted to win, but that does stand out that I sort of, the Wildcats got chip off their shoulder from 87 to 89. And I was able to get that chip off my shoulder of losing the big one. So, and to win the MVP, the most valuable player at that time was just icing on the cake. But the biggest highlight was just flying home from Perth with that trophy, sitting in 1A, first-class seat, that Kerry Stokes bought the trophy because he wouldn't fit anywhere else on the plane. And then arriving at Perth Airport, where there was five, ten thousand 10,000 people at the airport celebrating, as well as the parade through the city of Perth and pretty much been the toast of the city for a long time. Yeah, because in Perth, obviously the Wildcats and the and the West Coast Eagles are the two big fish there. To win that championship, be the first WA team, it would have been massive back then. Yes, and there was only Wildcats and West Coast Eagles at that time. So people would just watch the Wildcats on Channel 7 and then the West Coast Eagles on Channel 7 or vice versa. So there weren't as many 
slices to the pizza as there is now with the Dockers and the rugby and even baseball's bigger now. So we definitely were huge in the town at the time, very much celebrated and really, really enjoyed being the first West Australian National League team to win a championship. We did it in 1990-91, and the Eagles were fortunate enough to do it in 92. And then we did it again. We got there in 93, and the Eagles won it again in 94. Yeah, and then you in 95. We, we yeah. won it in 95. So, man, those were some good times in, uh, in sports for Western Australia. Yeah, that's unbelievable. You're five years in a row of, of making grand finals. So the next year, Cal Bruton was moved on after the championship. He brought you to Australia. You win the title with him that first year, and then he's let go. How did you see that situation? I was hurt, and I guess I've been hurt a lot of times through sport where a friend of mine or someone that I really enjoy playing with is no longer there. So I remember flying out to America after the championship, and you just assume the winning coach is going to be back. So when I heard that Cal wasn't returning, I was hurt. But that's what I've learned in sport is that you can only control what you can control. And that was beyond my control. So we were fortunate enough to come back and win the grand final again the following year with Murray Arnold. But it doesn't mean that I didn't have a hard time dealing with or understanding why that decision was made. The 1991 championship is something I've always found quite interesting because Murray Arnold came in for the 91 season. He had previous experience in the NBA with the Chicago Bulls. How did you see him as a coach and how do you reflect on that 1991 season as a whole? Well, I wasn't very happy at the beginning, obviously, because I didn't understand why Cal wasn't the coach. But I didn't make it easy on him, (laughs) to be honest. But I remember Murray the end of a preseason tournament, we went over to Melbourne, and I didn't make it uh, easy on him, I can, I must say. And he brought me into his office after we arrived back in Perth, and he sort of had a really heart-to-heart with me. And as a professional, you are hired to do a job, so at the end of the day, I had to get on with it. And I did my job. But Murray's style was totally different. I've just finished the running sun, have some fun, I just finished playing at University of Oklahoma where we we averaged over 100 points a game and margin of victory was probably 25, 30 points. And we ran and put up a lot of numbers, a very offensive-minded team. And now Murray is here saying, keep them out of the paint. We're going to hold them under 80 and just a totally different brand of ball. So, but hey, it worked. And it wasn't the most exciting brand of ball, but it was very effective. I think we had our highest winning percentage that season of any season with the Wildcats at the time through the regular season. So, Mary was different, but we got the job done in 1990 and in 1991. Because that championship against Eastside Spectres, you won 2-1. It's a very interesting championship because it seemed to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though the club itself didn't really like Murray Arnold's coaching style but yet it worked well. It, it was a it seems like a bit of an odd dynamic where the, the players don't necessarily agree with the coaching style, but it still works and you still won a championship out of it. The Wildcats poised to become only the third team in NBL history to win back-to-back championships. Margin is 10. Larkins. He is back there. 
defender. He's got an eye on the clock. He's got a smile on the face. The arms are in the air. The Wildcats are champions. The team which won the regular season by five games deservedly have gone on to win the championship. And the Perth Entertainment Centre erupts to announce champions for the second year in a row. And what a grand final series it was. I didn't mind it at all. What I had a problem with was that the decision that was made after, you know, the coaching decision. I didn't have a problem with the style or Mary as a person. Now, some people did, but I didn't. I always did play defense, and I always thought I was underestimated with my defense. I'm second all-time leader in Wildcats in blocks and probably third or so in defensive rebounds. So I totally understood where Mary was coming from, and I've always learned to respect authority. So there's always a lot of ways in a cat and whoever is the leader at that time I've learned to respect their leadership and then figure out a way to win so I won four grand finals under four different coaches Cal, Murray Adrian Hurley and Alan Black so you just you know I learned after the first year you just figure out a way to win regardless of who's the pilot All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price, but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, Contact us directly via phone at 0418-894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. The next year, 1992, Murray Arnold was there again, but you weren't as successful. Then 93, Adrian Hurley comes in and you make the grand final series again. 2-1 loss against Melbourne Tigers. The series is highlighted, of course, by the Gazers, Lindsay and Andrew, finally winning a title together. After being successful in your first two attempts, can you explain the feeling of losing a grand final? Don't touch a thing, yells out, Gaze. Vlahov for two. And the Tigers, for the first time in history, have won the NBL title. Super effort for the Melbourne Tigers. Great scenes of jubilation. Great presence of mind from Vlahov last time when he got that ball, Stephen. Didn't take the three-pointer news. Three points weren't enough. He wanted the foul. There you can see the Gays family and the Gays family in Perth enjoying the first ever. Is that emotion from Lindsay? Look at the Gays family. Lindsay and Andrew. Andrew just tears streaming down the face. Something they've wanted so badly for so long. But the Perth Wildcats 
what a performance by them. They were gone with a couple of minutes to go, and they almost nicked it, almost forced it into overtime. What a great game of basketball. What an advertisement to the NBL. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. Bernard Copeland and I had a real battle, and he talked more trash than anybody I'd ever (laughs) seen. So if I was going to lose to anybody, he would be the last person in the world that I wanted to lose to at that time. Now, fast forward now, he and I are great friends, and they just celebrated their freaking 30-year anniversary on that championship. And he and I had a little joke on it. So can laugh about it now, but it definitely was very, very, very disappointing to me. I can still remember vividly in that deciding game, picking up my fourth file in the first half on a questionable charge call that I even remember the referee's name that made the call. But um, You do or you don't was, remember? I do remember his name. But a great referee, a great referee. So, But it was really, really disappointing. <laughs> a bit funny, though, because I was sitting over there bawling my eyes out and and then I heard my name called. I was awarded the grand final MVP, the only player to ever win a most valuable player award on the losing team. That's not something that I'm proud of, but I was really happy that Copeland didn't get MVP. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. When you win it in a losing team, it's in any sport, that's very rare for the, the winner of the best of field to be on the losing team. What's that feeling like? Do you appreciate the fact you won it, or does it... In that moment, do you not care? Do you look at it later in life and you're proud of it? What's the emotion like when you win it in a losing team? Finally, ladies and gentlemen, the National Basketball League awards the most valuable player over the three games of the series. There are a lot of thrilling contests during the year, a lot of great individual contributions. The judges had a hard time picking the MVP of this series, but they felt over the three games that Ricky Grace from the Perth Wildcats was the MVP. Ricky Grace, the grand final MVP. We're all obviously disappointed. Um, we'd like to thank you guys for supporting us the whole year. Um, we came in second this year. We, we were runner-ups, but you guys came in first as fans. Congratulations. Thank you. At the time, you do not care. Well, I did. At the time, I 100% did not care. I could have, I mean, I could have left that trophy in the locker room. But out of respect for the game and the trophy, I didn't, obviously. But I absolutely did not care. Now, looking back on it, I always enjoyed doing first. We were the first National League team to win a championship. Nobody can ever take that away. So to be the first person to do that, looking back on it, it's something that I'm pretty proud of, but I would have much rather have won it in a winning situation than, than that. But nah, you definitely look back on it a little bit and go, ha, I must have been pretty good. Oh, you were. Are you still the only one that's done that in the NBL? I, would, I think it's safe to say I am. Yeah, I can't think of the top of my head anyone else that's done it. The disappointment of losing a grand final, how long does that last? As a professional athlete, do you ever really get over it or does it still bother you after this time? You never get over it. It's like the death of something. Yeah, it's just something you never get over. Uh, not winning a bronze medal 
in the Olympics, losing losing the game for the bronze in Sydney 2000. I had an opportunity to be a, a Olympic medalist, and I'm not. So just that missed opportunity is something that every time the Olympics come around, I think about. Every time the NCAA tournament comes around, the final four and all of that sort of jazz. Well, I made it to the championship game and lost to a team that we had beaten twice already that year, granted by only four points each time. But those sort of losses, you just never get over. And I don't know about a lot of athletes, but I tend to remember my losses even more than I do my wins. You just deal with it. You just roll your eyes and go, oh. So, no, you never, well, I will never get over it. I mean, that's just sport. And I do appreciate championships as well and all of the successes. But I wanted to go down as the person that won more grand finals than anyone in the history of Australia. And I didn't quite achieve that. You know, I made it to six, but unfortunately, we only won four, though. So, and that's not a pretty, you know, that's not a bad hit rate in 16 years making it to the grand finals every two and a half years. So I'm, you know, happy with it. But man, you never get over being that close and then not getting there. This coincided with your NBA stint. So you did play in the NBA for the Atlanta Hawks. Lenny Wilkins was the coach at the time. Yep. The human highlight film was there at the time, Dominique Wilkins. How did this opportunity come about? Because this is something I've been really keen to, to talk to you about. Well... The assistant coach to the Atlanta Hawks was a guy named Dick Helm. Dick Helm used to come out to Australia with athletes in action. There was basketball sort of traveling team that was a Christian squad that traveled around the world, and they were the athletes. They were named athletes in action. So Lakeside Lightning did a bit of a partnership with athletes in action to bring them out here, and the Wildcats played a practice match against the Athletes in Action. So Dick Helm was associated with Athletes in Action. So he saw me play there, and he actually attended a Wildcats training during that 1993 season. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't have any aspirations of going back to the NBA. So when Dick left, we never really spoke. He was at our training sessions. He was at the game, but we never spoke. So fast forward to the end of 1993, playing some really good basketball to be voted most valuable player in a losing team. We had just come back from, I guess, commiserating on a boat trip. And I had gotten home about 5 in the morning, and Dave Hancock, our assistant coach, rang me at 5.30, and I was already in trouble for getting home at 5.30 in the morning. And here's Dave ringing my phone saying the Atlanta Hawks want me on the next flight over. So I hung the phone up on Dave and said, quit playing. It's not the right time to be playing practical jokes. So Dave <laughs> rang me back and said, hey, hey, man, I'm actually telling the truth here. They want you on the next flight out. So I just remember Channel 10 and Channel 9 taking footage of me at 9 in the morning after getting in at 530. And I I think it took me a while to knock down a couple of shots, but I ended up getting a few shots in for the TV station that I was on a midnight flight to Atlanta. So That's pretty cool. About 72 hours after losing the grand final, I'm sitting in Chicago Stadium, and all I hear is, and now, you're 
Chicago Bulls. I'm going, wow. 72 hours ago, I was <laughs> just getting home. <laughs> That's crazy. So, and then they put me in the game and scored four points in about a minute and a half. And I was thinking, man, if I score four points in a minute and a half, I can average about 20 in the NBA. <laughs> but no, it didn't quite work out that way. And But it did sort of satisfy that thirst of mine, just wondering whether I was good enough to be in the NBA. And that, to me, proved that I was. I just got there at the beginning of the season, and I didn't know the plays, and it was just too hard for them to get me caught up with everything. So they did invite me to come back the next year to go through summer league and all of that. But I was very happy here in Perth, and they didn't guarantee me a contract. So I just decided to just come back to Perth and live happily ever after. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why was it only three games? So you pretty much made the decision on your own that you you actually wanted to stay in the NBL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I only got in three games, but I was actually there for probably two months, a month and a half. I was happy just to sit there and collect those paychecks because it was during the off-season of the <laughs> Wildcats. And I was pretty happy just to chill out over there. Back then, was the atmosphere different to the NBL? Was there a big difference? I mean, obviously, I mean, the NBA is a paid a hell of a lot more, but the base salary wasn't far off from what I was doing here in Australia. And, you know, what I enjoyed about Australia was, I guess, being a big fish in a small pond instead of a little fish in a big pond. But also, I was doing a lot of work in the education space, in the Aboriginal space. I was involved in community work here. And I genuinely felt like I was enriched into Perth sporting fabric. I just felt a part of this city. Still do. So, to me, I just wanted to be a part of something, I guess, bigger than just playing basketball. So, how do you reflect now on your time at Atlanta? Because you are forever in the history books as an NBA player. I was going to say, are you disappointed that you didn't get a longer stint in the NBA, but you obviously made the decision on your own to come back. How does playing in the NBA sit with you amongst all your other achievements? Short and sweet. That's the way I look at it, short and sweet. I grew up playing with and against a lot of those guys. So from a talent point of view, I know where my game stands up. So I made the decision, just like Blahoff. I mean, Blahoff was offered go back and uh, try out with the Lakers. He had a very good training camp with the Lakers, and they invited him back, but he said no thanks. So, yeah, I was. I am very content with my time in the NBA. What also helped, and you said we get to it, was also participating in the Olympics. Because to me, there are guys that have played in the NBA, played, made lots of money, but they've never played in the Olympics. So to me, that experience of being able to play in the Olympics, best in the world, and I played very well in the Olympics as well, that sort of, I guess, quenched my thirst to compete with what I thought was best in the world. And also, when we played with the Wildcats, we went over to London, and we played the Houston Rockets, but we also played Real Madrid, which was the European champion during that time in 1995, and we actually beat Real Madrid, which was the European champion of their league that year. So, to me, those little things just 
legitimize where I felt like I was as a professional athlete in the world. So I didn't really need to quench that NBA thirst. Well, 1995, you won another championship that year under Adrian Hurley against North Melbourne, who were going for back-to-back. You won the series again 2-1. What are your memories of the 1995 championship? And also, as you mentioned, going to play Houston and Real Madrid because you saw late last year when the 36ers beat Phoenix Suns. What was it like back then to play against NBA and, and uh, European teams? 108 to 88, we're counting down. 3 2 Here's Rudy, the Wildcats are champions, the Wildcats have won their third championship in the NBL, champions for 1995, let the crowd tell the story. Andrew Waha, captain this afternoon, captain and he's opening the champagne, Wildcats are ready to party. The club's third title, Martin Catalini's excited, Andrew Warhoff, the skipper, tasted defeat two years ago. James Crawford, what an afternoon he had. It's his third championship ring. We saw a brief glimpse of Terry Stokes. And now the balloons and screamers are starting to fall. What a moment in that huddle there. Yeah, it was great. I remember... 1995, Daryl McDonald came into the league in 94, and he sort of took the league by storm, and we struggled as a team in 94. So this was D-Mac actually going for back-to-back championships, and if they would have won in 95, well, then basically people would have been saying there's a new sheriff in town. Yeah, because he um, came in and just dominated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I knew D-Mac. He went to Texas A&M. I went to University of Oklahoma. I'm from Dallas, Texas. So we played against each other in a junior college All-American game. So I knew D-Mac, and he came out here setting the world on fire and won the championship in 94 and was about to do it again in 95. So I felt D-Mac really putting his stamp on this league. So for me, it was like I need to slow this man down slow down the stamp that he's putting on this league. So, thank goodness James Crawford had the game of his life in game three that propelled us to that championship. I just remember the winner of that game obviously going to play the Houston Rockets, but the flight was leaving at midnight. So That same day? I rocked up. Same day. Wow. Same day. I didn't know that. So, I rocked up to the game, and here comes North Melbourne Giants rocking up with their bags packed. And they didn't have small bags. They had big old bags. <laughs> like, they planned on being on the road for a while. So, I, I just remember looking at them walking in the stadium going, no, 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 you boys not about to unpack that, that bag. You about to go back home. So, you, you know, like I said, James Crawford had the game of his life. And we were fortunate enough to win that game. And then obviously flew over to London to play. I was trying to get the boys to take the unconventional route and not pop too many bottles of champagne on the way over. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, did, you, did you actually get to celebrate the 95 championship or was it all business? Unfortunately, we did. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't even... I don't, and, and our first game was against the Houston Rockets, so I don't think we even saw the rim until the second half because we were, we were a little foggy. <laughs> things, things were a bit foggy, but... We ended up with a clear enough head to second game 
represent ourselves really well against Real Madrid. And as I said, we got that victory against what people would say the second best league in the world would be the European League. And for us to beat the champion of that league was something that I was very proud of. What was the atmosphere like? It was more like a showpiece scenario type setting. I mean, we were in London. The fans were... They were into it, but probably not as into it as if it would have been in Perth, <laughs> if I must say. But it was a good atmosphere. I wouldn't say it was a great atmosphere, but it was a great achievement, a great accomplishment. It was great to be a part of, but I wouldn't say it was the most festive sort of thing that ever happened. Like Sydney Olympics, oh my goodness, every day was a world party, you know, and I made sure that I enjoyed that a bit. I mean, I was down, I traveled into the city of Sydney and uh, made sure that I soaked that up. And that was just a three-week world party. Whereas with the trip to London, I just remember lots of security, but still having a great time. Is basketball big in England? I don't even know. Well, it definitely wasn't then. I mean, football, soccer is obviously runs that. And even cricket, uh, yeah. Yeah, even cricket. I didn't really sense it being a, I guess, from a fan's point of view, I don't even think it was sold out. So really well done and really proud to be a part of it. I remember Gary Stokes, the owner of West Australian Channel 7, Caterpillar, you know, and the rest. He really made us feel like rock stars. He really looked after us very, 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 very well. It was a great trip. It was a great time. And again, I mentioned earlier, I enjoyed doing first. And that was definitely a first as well. And as you mentioned, it quenched that thirst that you were after. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, we didn't play as well as we liked. I think we ended up losing by about 40 or so. But as I said, we were enjoying ourselves quite a bit on that fight over. and had. But, um, no, that was definitely a just sort of quenched my thirst, sort of nose with that on top of the Olympics, on top of the stand with Atlanta. Yeah, so... I always felt like my game was world-class, and that just helped legitimize that. Halftime break here on Amato's fifth quarter podcast, and I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated, and I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility, which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. So moving on a few years later, the 2000 championship under Alan Black against Victoria Titans. Now, this was a very different squad compared to the 90s. You had, you know, Marcus Timmons, who won the MVP. You had Paul Rogers, James Harvey, Anthony Stewart. You won the final eight games of the season to finish third. Now, both top two teams that year failed to make the grand final. I can't remember too many occasions where this happened. So you weren't the best team, but you, you played the best basketball when it mattered the most. Where does that final championship sit with you? Seven-point advantage for the Perth Wildcats. Timmons reaching in from behind us tonight. Jason Smith the ball. 
Ricky Grace, hands off for Stewart. We count down the last five seconds. The third Wildcats, Stewart Byers can't finish it off. But the champions for 2000 in the NBL Mitsubishi Challenge are the third Wildcats. They celebrate in style, almost tearing down our commentary position, Alan Black. His son Stephen have both won an NBL championship for the first time in their careers. And the hero is Marcus Timmons. Fans going off in Perth. Well, that's sort of the type of player that I feel like I was. I always felt like I played the best basketball when it mattered the most. And I wouldn't say that I would cruise through the NBL season, but I definitely made sure that we were playing the best well I did my best to ensure that I was playing the best basketball and the team was playing the best basketball at the right time even if you go all the way back to 1990 our first grand final we weren't playing the best basketball throughout the year but towards the end of the season we were so that's sort of how I used to I guess run the team or sort of play was I sort of ensured that I was kicking on all cylinders and the team was kicking on all cylinders at the right time of year. If you look at my career, I didn't know this until afterwards, but my playoff stats were actually better than my regular season stats. Yeah, that's um, saying something because you make your name in the regular season, you make your fame in the playoffs. Yeah, that's one thing that I prided myself on was Particularly in big games, I don't think you can remember me having any stinkers. So, I mean, that's something that I guess I built my game around what, and as I evolved, because in 2000, I mean, 2000, you know, that's 11 years later. So, my game had evolved to where I was a bit more of a scorer, you know, and I was a much better shooter than I was when I entered the league. So, I think I was just more proud of the fact that I was able to win a full championship under a full different coach to where I had to evolve my game, make sure that my game continued to evolve, but also to have a game diverse enough to be able to win in different styles. So with Kyle's running stun, with Murray's defense, with Adrian Hurley's triangle offense, with Alan Black just put the ball in my hand, sat back and crossed his legs. And, you know, I really appreciated how he trusted me and the leadership group that we would get it done. So I was really, I guess, happy with the fact that I was able to do it four times under four different coaches, four different styles, and that my game was that I was able to evolve my game throughout my career. I mean, in 14 years in, I was runner-up MVP in my 14th season, which because most of my early career, I was a facilitator, Crawford, Blahoff, Fisher, and all those guys, you know, I had to make sure that they were looked after. But later in my career, coaches came to me and said, we need you to score more. So, okay, you want me to score more? I scored more and thought I deserved to win the MVP. But Mark Brackey was the winner that year. And I actually didn't play one or two games, so probably hurt myself a bit there. But, yeah, I was really proud of the fact that I was able to stay at a high level and for my game to evolve to a way to where I could play different styles that suited different coaches but still be able to win a championship. 
that's remarkable to win four championships with four different coaches. Is there a 4-3-2-1 in terms of championships? Do you ever have a favorite championship or are they all equally as significant? The first one's my favorite. We were the toast of the town. I mean, that's it. So, And to see those grown men that were on the team relieved and the jubilation and just to see that relief and happiness and joy that championship and then just flying back to Perth and man I mean that airport was absolutely I mean there was thousands and thousands of people there late at night you know 10 11 o'clock at night school night kids and families and everyone was there and it was just that atmosphere was one that was absolutely amazing you know back to back was great 95 playing the Rockets was great. 2000 was great. But that first championship, I think, is the one that sort of makes my chest sort of get warm more than the other. And there was a massive parade as well for the club, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's no, awesome. Massive parade. That's uh, awesome. Front page West Australian photo on there. On the eighth day, God created Ricky. How good's that? I still have that picture frame. Someone framed that up and gave it to me. So every now and then I get to look at that. It's amazing that, you know, that was actually over 30 years ago. It seems time has flown. But, and I mean, we're talking a lot about me, but I was very lucky to come into a situation that had someone that, a team that needed my skill set. It had great scores, it had veterans, it had leadership. It just needed someone that could steer that ship, which suited my skill set to the T. So I was lucky to come to an organization like the Wildcats and to fans such as here in Perth in a city so parochial. So, yes, I took advantage of the situation, but it was just a perfect skill set for me. And I'm very grateful to the Wildcats, the administration, the owners, the players, the fans, city it's just been something that just exceeded all of my expectations when i got on that flight in sydney at nine o'clock and expected a one-hour flight to perth to get there at 10. <laughs> it just seems to me like you really found your happy place in perth it's like your niche you know you why would you want to leave that why would you want to leave a place that's bring, brought you so much joy exactly and i feel like i've brought this place a lot of joy too so a win-win when it comes to sport and I'm really proud of what I've been able to do in sport I'm really proud of what I've been able to do in the community just the people I've met in the basketball space and you know in the communities and the remote communities the work I did in the Aboriginal girls space I'm just really really proud of what I've been able to do but really thankful for what this state has given me I was very fortunate, very grateful to come to a town in a city and that needed my skill set, and I was smart enough to uh, take advantage of the opportunity. As you come towards the end of your NBL career, you did have one last chance at a championship, so that was the 2003 Grand Final Series. As you get older and, and as we're coming towards the end, does that Grand Final loss hurt more than 93 considering your age and knowing that you're closer to the end. The Sydney Kings are starting to celebrate. 
their 16-year odyssey in the National Basketball League, once described as the worst sporting team in Australia, well, they've sent the critics away and have captured the National Basketball League Grand Final in 2003. It is all over. The Sydney Kings have swept the Perth Wildcats and they have done it in style. The final analysis, they get home in game two by 16 points. Full time from Challenge Stadium, Sydney 117, Perth 101. Well, they had to come from behind and capture game one by four points, but they were never in any danger in this game two. They sweep the grand final, only the sixth team in 17 years to do it. But this has been one for the ages with Brian Gorgie and the new coach and a team that prior to the season starting, well, they were in administration and one wondered if they were even going to get on the floor. But Steve, not only are they on the floor, but they are the best team in the country. They sure are, and they showed it all year long, along with the Perth Wildcats. Let's not take anything away from their season. They and the Sydney Kings were the rock teams all year long, able to bounce back from defeats. I still think the 93 one hurt more. 2000 hurt, and I feel like we blew that one. Well, I know we blew that one, and I actually feel like I blew that one because in Sydney, we were up by quite a bit, and I just felt like I was good enough to where if there's a team that I'm in control of, I would not let us lose from that winning position, and I did. And that's one that I do sort of blame myself for, even though team game and and that sort of thing. But I just felt like it, I didn't play my best in that fourth quarter. And that's when they, that's when Sydney came back and won that one. And we were still licking our wounds a bit. So they just jumped us in game two. But we really had game one. So I was disappointed in that loss. But at the time, I didn't think that was going to be my last grand final. I was still playing very, very good basketball. The following year, I had a knee injury, which ended up causing me to retire. But I thought I was going to play until I was 40. You just wanted to keep going? Well, I thought I was good enough to keep going. My thing was always, if I felt like I was in the top five of my position, well, then I would continue to play. And 2000, when we lost that grand final, well, I felt like I was still in the top five in my position. We actually, I think I was runner up, you know, MVP the year before. So, you know, I was still top five in my position. Now, when I injured my knee, which happened at the end of the season, well, then I wasn't in the best bargaining position. And I didn't, I wasn't going to play unless I felt like I was, in the top five in my position and being compensated that way. So when I hurt my knee and, and it was pretty apparent that I wasn't going to be acknowledged as being in the top five in my position, well, then I sort of surprised everyone and just said I was going to retire. I always wanted to retire when people had good memories of me playing at the top of my game, and I felt like that's what I did. So when you retired, you were content with that decision, although maybe... Well, no player really ever wants to retire, but you were happy it was the right time because you see some players sort of hang on too long before you wanted to go out being one of the greatest. Correct. 
Welcome to Sport everyone, Ricky Grace has quit the Perth Wildcats. The Cats champion telling the club he's had enough and he'll retire at the end of the current season. Lockie Reed is at Cats headquarters. Now Lockie, you floated this story earlier in the week about Ricky's future, but this has happened a little quicker than we would have thought. Yes, Tim, I was probably expecting Ricky Grace to announce his retirement after the season ended, but uh, just a few moments ago we met with owner Andrew Vlahoff and coach Scotty Fisher and told them the sad news that he's hanging up his boots at the end of this season. Now, I've been hanging around like a bad smell and uh, I've convinced Ricky to have a bit of a chat to us on 10 News. Ricky, retirement, it's a big decision. What are your emotions right now? Oh, it's a celebration of uh, a job well done. Um, I've always said that I'll continue to play the game as long as I consider myself one of the top five players in the league. And, uh, you know, because of injuries and circumstances, um, I just feel like it's time for me to um, hand that banner on to someone else. hundred percent. I wanted to go out with that great memory where people would say, man, he still could play, you know. In the next year, people were thinking that I may come back. But I've seen so many people do that. And you look at him and just go, ooh. I didn't want to be one of those that was the eighth man and on the team and there's an up-and-coming player that I'm sort of taking their minutes and that sort of thing. And some people can do it. Some people have done it very well, but that just wasn't me. So, and at that time, I had just gotten my master's degree in educational leadership and I just wanted to do something different. And I felt like, I was very, very blessed to be able to do it for 16 years. And if 16 years as a professional sports person isn't enough, you're greedy. So I was very content and just felt like it was time for me to focus on other things in life. We're at the end of your NBL career now. I do want to have a chat to you, and I've been very keen to ask you about this. Your Australian career. So you're a part of the 2000 Olympic squad and represented Australia. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I I believe you were originally in the squad for 96, but you got cut at the last minute. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I, In 1996, I was chosen to be on the Olympic team. I went through two years of traveling around during the off-season with the Olympic team, I was very keen to make that team. I became Australian in 1993. And the reason I became Australian in 1993 was the rule was for you to play in the Olympics. You had to be naturalized three years and three days before opening ceremony. Back then, was getting citizenship easy? I'll say yes. I'll leave it at that. Okay, okay. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. (laughs) So so I got my citizenship. Barry Barnes was the coach of the Boomers at the time, and he wrote a letter to the Minister for Immigration, Department of Immigration, the Minister of Immigration, and yes, I got my citizenship. So Luke Longley signed a big contract with the Phoenix Suns in 96, and basically the way I understood it was Phoenix didn't want Luke to play in the Olympics or whatever. I really don't want to speak for Luke, but long story short, Luke did not play for Australia in the 96 Olympics. So when they found out that Luke wasn't going to play, well, they decided they needed another big man. Now, the rule is you can only have one unborn player on your Olympic team. You can't just go and sign eight people and from America and then put them on your Olympic team. Yeah, you yeah, can only that, have that, one. that makes sense, yeah. 
Yeah. So when Luke pulled out, Barry Barnes decided he wanted another big man, and the best available big man was Scott Fisher. So Barry rings me up about a month before the Atlanta Olympics, and I'm all planned to go. I've hired a townhouse for my mom, because I'm a mama's boy. I hired a townhouse for her and the family to come go to the 96 Olympics. He rings me up a month before and goes, Ricky, um, sorry, we're going with fish. So I told Barry, and I can't really repeat it on this air, (laughs) the names that I called Barry, and I hung up on him. Now, I made sure to bring Fish and congratulate him because he was a teammate of mine, and I wanted to keep that smooth, but was not happy with Mr. Barry Bourne. So fast forward to 2000, I didn't do any preparation for the Olympics, was playing very good basketball. A month before the Olympics, Barry Barnes rings me up and says, Ricky, you want to play in the Olympics? And I said, Barry, I take back everything I said. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> was that something that still annoys you that you weren't a part of 96, though? Or because you were in 2000, does it sort of make up for it? It makes up for it, 100%. Okay. 100%. I only had to do it once. It was the highlight of my career, and that's even winning championships with the Wildcats. Yeah, that's a big sitting, call. Very big call. Sitting in the locker room with Andrew Gaze after a pre-Olympic game where he's getting a phone call saying, and I'm sitting next to him where they're telling him he's going to carry the flag for Australia out in the Olympics and in Olympic Park. And for us to celebrate that with him and I guess to be around guys that I've competed against all my life here in Australia, to be around those guys, to be accepted by them and their culture, just a little black boy from Dallas, born from the hood, trying to do good, was just a highlight for me. And one that I'm, again, grateful that those guys accepted me into their culture because that is a culture of those boys. So being a part of that 2000 Olympics made up for anything to do with 1996. Yeah, that's an amazing answer. So even as I'm sure you you still consider yourself a proud American and a proud Australian, to put the green and gold on and actually represent Australia, it's a massive honour. What did it mean to you when you, you actually put on the jumper and you went out there and, and represented the country? Man, it was, I mean, just the way you introduced it then just took me back and just gave me goosebumps because it was such a proud moment for me. There's a lot of people that have played in the NBA, but there's not as many that have played in the Olympics and represented their country. And to be able to do that and represent not only Australia, but West Australia. You know, that's one thing West Australians have taught me is I'm not just Australian, I'm West Australian. So represent the country and the Wildcats and West Australia was something that was a very proud moment for me. And then it just legitimized my professional career to be able to play against the best in the world and also play well against the best in the world. So that, to me, was the highlight of my career. And the tournament itself, Australia finished fourth as they had many, many times in the World Cups and the Olympic Games before finally getting a medal in the 2020 Olympics. What was it like to be around, as you said, Andrew Gaze and, and Shane Hill and Brett Maher, Sam McKinnon 
And what is the, the boomers' culture like? There's a lot spoken about it and how tight-knit the group still is to this day. What does it actually mean to be a boomer? It's amazing. It's like you grow an extra foot. It's something that the synergy and the telepathy that is in that room is something that is very, very hard to describe unless you feel it. It's like I had the pleasure of what those planes that take off from the ship, from the U.S. Marines. They were out here and I took off on that jet fighter. You just you just take off in the G-force that you get from that. It's just something that unless you're a part of it, it's really, really hard to explain, but very, very powerful. And it's one that came about from those guys because they played in four Olympics together. Those guys had been together since they were 17, 18 years old. And the bond that they had developed just to be a part of that 2000 was sort of the end of that era. And to be a part of that with those men was something that, and for them, again, to allow me into their culture to experience that and be a teammate of theirs doing that was something that that I appreciated and cherished. And unless you're a part of it, it's just really, really, really hard to explain. Very, very proud to have won those championships with the Wildcats. Very, 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 very proud to have done that for the city of Perth and the people of West Australia. But this was Australia. And this was guys that were the top of the game, not only in Australia, but in the world. These were great, great players. And to be a part of that with them and, you know, with somebody that I used to hate. I used to hate those guys. I made myself hate those guys. But then after you compete against them for six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, well, that hate then becomes a respect, a healthy respect. And for me to be able to compete and play with these guys, it was unbelievable. What did it mean to you when Australia finally broke through and got a medal with the 2020 Olympics? Did that take you back? I wasn't as proud as Andrew Gage was. I mean, he went off, you know. he was, Yeah, he was in tears. He, he was in tears. For me, I was like, damn, I wish that was me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was damn, why couldn't that have been us? But... I was happy for them, relieved for them to finally get over that hump and for somebody to finally do it. I was happy for them, but I must admit part of it was saying, damn, I wish that was me. (laughs) Before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break here on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. 
Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favor and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you'll score yourself an extra 10% off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. Now as we're coming towards the end, Rick, you did mention your mother and how she really pushed you with your studies and how you're a big mama's boy. Believe I heard or read somewhere that in your contract with the Wildcats, you had it in writing for your mum to be flown out during the NBL seasons. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. In, in my first contract and in every contract that I signed with the Wildcats, there was definitely a clause in there that they had to fly my mom over every year. Uh, I was raised by a single mom. She raised three boys. The only time I saw her was basically she was asleep because she worked two jobs. And I was basically raised on the streets. But they built this rec center near my mom's house when I was about nine years old. And that rec center saved my life. So that's where I learned how to play basketball. And there was a mentor that worked at the rec center who became sort of that male figure in my life that mentored me. But no, definitely still a mama's boy. She just turned 80, still kicking around there in Dallas. And We'll always be a mama's boy. When I go home, I still get breakfast in bed. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> I do have this on good authority. You, you don't necessarily like answering this question, but if I may be the exception to the rule just this one time, there is a lot of talk, always has been, about who's the greatest wildcat of all time. It's either yourself or Bryce Cotton. Now, for me, you're both definitely one and two. No question. I understand there are different eras and different styles. The game changes through time. You're clearly the best of your time. Bryce is clearly the best of his time. But who is the better Wildcat? Is it you or is it Bryce Cotton? I just think it would be a little bit disrespectful to say either. If I said I'm the best, that would be very disrespectful to Bryce. And if if people said Bryce was better, I wouldn't feel disrespected because if you look at the numbers, man, I mean, Bryce, I never won an MVP. Bryce has won league MVPs. Individually, I didn't do that. So if you look at the numbers only, Bryce would probably have enough even now to sort of have that mantle. But there's so many other things that sort of go into this. I love me some Bryce Cotton. I think he's an even better man than he is a player. You know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know him enough. Bryce and I have had enough chats and talk about real stuff for me to say, yes, I know him. I thank him for what he's done for Perth. I thank him for what he's done for the Wildcats. I thank him for what he's done for my career because without Bryce Cotton, people wouldn't be talking about me as much. So I really, really love what he's done, what he's doing, and I hope that he continues to do it because people will continue to talk about me. <laughs> you know what? I think there's only one thing left. I would love to see him play for Australia. And I think everyone would. That would be amazing for him to go to a World Cup or an Olympic Games. Yeah, so would I. I you know, that would just be the cherry on top of his amazing accomplishment. Hopefully, we do get to see that one day. I hope so. 
Ricky, as we're about to close up, feel free to give Grace Basketball a play. Where can people find you and how can they get involved with what you're doing? GraceBasketball.com.au And if you want to be a better basketball player, look it up. I always finish off my chats asking three last questions. In your career, at any level, any club, who's the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who's the best coach you ever played under and why? The best player? I genuinely do not have one player to pop in my head. At the University of Oklahoma, we had three first-round draft picks on the team, Harvey Grant, Stacey King, and Mookie Blaylock. All three of those guys went on to have very successful NBA careers. So they were the three best there. And then here at Blahoff Crawford Fisher, the longevity of their greatness, their high basketball IQ, just great, great players. So I just can't name one. Genuinely, honestly, no one person popped in my head. When I think of Harvey, Stacey, and Mookie, I think of those three just like the Mount Rushmore, the same as Blahoff Crawford Fisher. Coaches, man, I had a junior college coach that coached me straight out of high school. He taught me 90% of what I know about basketball. And he was very instrumental in my life. Another mentor of mine, he was probably the best coach. The best player to play against, my goodness. I will tell you this. Now, Steve Kerr, last college game was against me. We beat him in the Final Four. And I guarded him, and um, I was very happy with that performance. A guy named Sean Elliott was on that team. Danny Mannion, who was the first-round draft, first player picked in the draft, was on that team. And the league that I played in at the University of Oklahoma, man, we played against probably 12 NBA first-round draft picks. So that was amazing. Andrew Gaze was amazing. Bernard Copeland was amazing. Derek Rucker was tough. Shane Hill. Leroy Loggins. Man, it's just too many people. Nobody just popped in my head, number one. Been a blessing. I mean, I just love the sport. When I was a kid, I used to sleep with my basketball. I just love the sport. I just can't imagine my life without it. I've, this sport has taught me so much. It's taught me how to win, how to lose. It's provided an income for me. It's It's provided a free education for me. It's shown me the world. So I'm very, very lucky to, I guess, be able to do and work in something that I love. So very grateful, very blessed, really appreciative to people like you that are interested enough to hear my story. Ricky Grace, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. I really respect you for what you did on the court and also what you're doing off the court. You're a proud Australian, and we're very lucky to still have you here. Thank you so much for for taking the time to come on the podcast. No worries. I'm glad you convinced me. And that is a wrap for another episode. I trust you enjoyed this conversation, and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review, and I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.